Certain information set forth in the podcast may contain forward-looking statements under applicable security laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance, and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. LifeSci Advisors and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in the podcast should circumstances or management's estimates or opinions change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or solicitation to buy securities and does not constitute investment advice. The name of the game in terms of efficacy and migraine is the CMAX that you can achieve with the product and the TMAX, the time that you achieve that. So we believe that through inhalation, we will have a very clear and distinct advantage from a PK perspective compared to any of the triptans, obviously, on the market, and even compared to some of the other DHEs that are currently on the market and in development through a nasal administration. Hello, my name is Neil Canavan, and this is Bench Talk Bios, a podcast series by LifeSite Partners where we introduce healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. Today, I'm speaking with Ted Rad. He is the CEO and director of Pullmatrix. Ted, welcome to Benchtop Bios. Glad to be here. Thank you. All right. So first things first, let's start off with the elevator pitch for your company. Where are you located? How long have you been located there? And give me an idea what kind of science you're doing there. Well, we're located in Lexington, Massachusetts this year. Next year, we'll be moving to a brand new facility in Bedford, Mass, which is just up the highway, right outside of Boston. The company's been around since 2004. It was private up until 2015 when there was an IPO with reverse merger with Ruthogen, and that formed Pullmatrix as we know it today. The company began as a biodefense company, worked off of things like DARPA grants and was looking at developing products that can help prevent transmission of infections, which would have come in very handy in the last couple of years. But through the course of that, made a shift and had one of its products that was in development that showed some potential in COPD, was developing it for COPD, and then ultimately that program did not progress, but it generated the technology and the IP, which is Iceburst, our dry powder formulation. And that's really the name of the game for Pullmatrix today, 2015 going forward, is how can we apply this delivery technology to deliver therapeutics via the lungs that can address a broad array of diseases? And I think our pipeline is a perfect demonstration of that. We have assets in COPD, in asthma, in neurology with uh, migraine. And our focus is to find areas of significant unmet need where we can use our platform technology to reformulate existing therapeutics or new chemical entities and either help overcome certain challenges that those products had through a different route of administration by delivering it to the lungs or maybe create some advantages in terms of efficacy and safety by delivering it to the lungs. So that's our business model. Okay. We're going to get a lot more about the drugs and especially the ISPRS platform in just a few minutes. But as listeners know, Benchtop Bile, our first mission is to find out a little bit about you. Ted, where were you born? A little town called Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> okay, listeners, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I will now ask a question to see if he actually did grow up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
How many times have you been to the Frontier Diner at three o'clock in the morning and what did you have there? Well, first of all, since leaving Albuquerque in 88 to go to college, you're probably the first person I've met from Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> that says something in and of itself. And anybody that's from Albuquerque or who's been through it knows the Frontier. And I would say the uh, hash browns with green chili and cheese are a staple for any yes. young adult. Yes. 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 Awesome. All right, so very late hours of the evening. So, but definitely. Oh, yeah, just for a little bit more for the listeners. The Frontier is located directly across the street from the main campus of University of New Mexico. You will find bleary-eyed students there at three o'clock in the morning on any given day. It is a 24-hour restaurant and highly recommend it. All right, so let's move on to your training. You did mention your university training. That was the University of Colorado in Boulder, lovely town. You're class of 92. You have an undergrad in business administration, marketing, and international business. So from that, I glean that you wanted to travel and sell stuff. So what kind of stuff were you thinking about selling? Well, interestingly, the international bent came from my family being from Colombia, South America. And in Colombia, my family owned a car dealerships. So I guess one would say I wanted to be a car salesman. I envisioned at some point that I would move into the family business and maybe be living in Colombia, and but things go a different direction. Ultimately, family business went away, moved into different things, but I still had that interest through travel of working internationally, felt that at some point in my career, I would work internationally. And at one point that took me to graduate school, Thunderbird, which was a international business program based out of uh, Glendale, Arizona, where I started international business. So that was always my intent. I would say the sales aspect, which you mentioned, again, coincidentally, is where I ended up coming out of Thunderbird. And I think it was just because I had the opportunity to work in a large corporate environment and felt a little confined there, maybe a bit more entrepreneurial and needed to I'm be. I'm sorry, the, the large corporate entity was? So when I was at, in graduate school at Thunderbird, Merck was, along with other companies, were recruiting students and graduates for internships. And they had a management development program that was six to nine months in rotation. You'd go work at White House Station, New Jersey. And I interviewed for and got that. And I worked in White House Station in their Latin American department for about nine months. And I think learned that at least at that stage of my career, the corporate in-house environment wasn't for me. I'd done some field rides with sales representatives and thought that looked very exciting where you could control your destiny a little bit more. And uh, ended up looking at a job with them in the Bronx, New York. And then I had an alternative uh, with Jansen at J&J based out of Scottsdale, Arizona. And again, my grad school was in Arizona, so I love Scottsdale. And I chose to come back to Scottsdale, and that's how I ended up at J&J, was after that management rotation at Merck. Oh, it's interesting to me that both Merck and J&J are recruiting in that area of the country. All right, so as you mentioned, you were in sales. You led a very large sales team in Phoenix and then Seattle. This went on for about six years. Were you at the time interested in a particular drug class or disease state or whatever they handed to you? You're like, yeah, I can sell that. Uh, a little bit more of the latter. Coming right out of school, you're most focused on getting a job and starting your career. I was just happy to have J&J &J on my business card. And I started in sales there and we had a gastrointestinal drug, infectious disease drug, a CNS drug. So we had a large number of drugs. The, the business was very different then. It wasn't biotech. It was all big pharma. And it was very sales and marketing driven. 
And But that was my first exposure of working with the physicians and understanding the patients that they work with. And I had the benefit of working in infectious disease and working with oncology and just seeing what these physicians go through to help better the lives of their patients. It was, I would say, very formative because you saw the direct impact. You weren't just sitting in a corporate office, get spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations. Uh, I was out engaging times with patients, even times were different then. I don't think HIPAA even existed. So you were engaged in a different level with physicians in the care of their patients. And it was a really exciting time. All right. So after that, you headed to Novartis. And in fact, you were poached by Novartis. And you were poached to do this because there was an underperforming sales team in their cardiovascular and diabetes unit. So two questions there. The first is about how does one physically do that? Do you just walk in and fire everybody or you incentivize everybody or you teach them something they didn't know? How do you do that? I would say it's probably 90% the latter. You're teaching people a different way of doing things. And of course, there's always the unfortunate time that you have to let people go just because they're not the right fit for what needs to be done. And when I was at J&J, those were two different sales districts, one in Phoenix and one in Seattle. And they were small teams, 10, 12 salespeople. But each of those districts at the time when I took over where they were ranked last and the rankings were predominantly based upon sales growth. And they were never top performing, but we were able to, over a couple of years at each place, bring the performance of those teams up to the top 10% in the company. And it was that ability to do that, that the regional director from J&J, who'd since left J&J and went to Novartis, he brought me over as he had a larger scale business. It was an our region, 140 people. And he knew what I'd done at J&J, and he was building out his leadership team. And so he brought me in as a regional director, which was a great opportunity for me. And to answer your question, I approached it with trying to understand what was going on and understand the people in the team. And they'd somehow lost the belief in themselves and the ability to perform. And I tried to rally the ones that could circle around a new vision that we can do well here and gave them some tools to do that and drive results in that way. And some people fell off the wagon along the way, but for the most part, we're able to retain the team. And that was the lowest performing region in the country. And by the time we finished that venture after four years, it was in the top two out of eight regions nationally. So I think if you focus on the people and help give them something new to believe in and give them some new tools that they believe will help, they'll follow that vision. And then the results have to follow. And fortunately that they did. So the poaching part for me has been interesting because my whole career has been through being given tremendous opportunities by people that I've worked with that have seen what me and my teams have been able to do, delivering on that. And then that just has led to the next thing. But it's been the same people that have re I've revolved around in my career from when I started at J&J &J all the way to where I am now at Paul Matrix. Well, let's talk about that. Someone in your network said, hey there's this opportunity or did you see the opportunity or was it poaching again? Yeah, it was poaching, but poaching's kind of the, that would mean a stranger. It was more mentorship and people bringing you along and seeing what you can do. And again, the regional director I worked for at J&J &J ultimately became the sales VP for one of the divisions at Novartis. He brought me in as a regional director at Novartis, both he and the head of the cardiovascular division, ultimately left Novartis and ended up at a company called Sepracor, 
One is the chief commercial officer. The other is head of sales. And after a few months there, they brought me in there to run sales for them, which I did for a couple of years. And then the person, again, that was in charge of the cardiovascular division at uh, Novartis ultimately became the CEO at Sepracor and gave me an opportunity to move into general management, where now I was responsible for sales and marketing. Fast forward a couple of years, we all ended up leaving that company after an acquisition. And I went kind of my own way and worked at Walgreens in a healthcare services division for home infusion, uh, helped separate that into private equity. And when that venture came to an end a couple of years later, really due to some changes in the market and business strategy, the same old CEO that I'd had at Sepracor happened to be chairman of the board at a little company called Pullmatrix. And he introduced me to the chief executive officer at Pullmatrix. And I interviewed and had some great discussions with him. And they brought me on board as the chief business officer in 2017. And then that ultimately led to the position I'm in now as the CEO. So, but again, there's just a constant soft touch throughout my career of just having had the benefit of working with some really great people that believed in the potential of what I could do. So uh, really fortunate to have those people in my career and in my life. Yeah, I've sort of, I won't say I stumbled forward, but a lot of it wasn't planned because it was just a matter of this person knew me from that part of my life. And then we just went forward from there of like, okay, we know you, we're comfortable with you. And as people, the diaspora goes out, you go with them. So yeah, I can appreciate that journey. I first want to mention why specifically they brought you in because Pullmatrix was going through a transition from late stage developed to a commercial organization. And you seem to be somewhat adept at, at turning things around and redesigning things. What exactly did that involve? Well, when I came on board, again, the company had been public since 2015. It had gone through some different iterations of itself, starting again as a biodefense company to becoming more of a platform technology company, looking to leverage that to right before I came on board, they really focused on developing their own inhaled therapeutics. So it wasn't so much a turnaround. The intent was to provide just complementary skills to what was there. So at the time there was a the CEO had been with the company for, gosh, I think probably 12 years. The chief scientific officer, similarly, a long period of time. We'd hired a chief commercial officer right after I came on board. But the point is the company was very science-driven, as you would expect, with early-stage biotech. But we were advancing products now into the clinic. We were doing a phase one study with the inhaled antifungal I think there was a belief that we needed to have a stronger vision around the business strategy for the company, the potential for the products, you know, kind of the market landscape, how these products are going to fit in. The company needed that thinking and experience infused into how it approached the business model going forward. So that's what I brought as the chief business officer. I was really the first non-scientist added to the executive team to help shape strategy and direction for the programs help check our assumptions around what the programs might be worth. I remember the first project I had to do was just doing a, some market research and forecasting for the inhaled antifungal. And we wanted to do that and understand the market potential before we even went into phase one. We wanted to know what we were getting ourselves into. So that was really my initial role and not so much a turnaround role, more of an additive role, just filling, I think, a gap that the company had at the time. All right, let's talk about the technology and then we'll go to the pipeline. The technology is iSPERS. 
this is a way of making a drug inhalable. Now, I think 20 years ago or something, there was a company called Nectar. I mean, there still is the company, but back then they wanted to make inhalable everything. And it seemed like, oh, okay, this totally works. And then it just totally didn't. So what is Iceverse? So I think it's probably good to start with what traditional dry powder drug inhalation is. So uh, lactose blend, lactose-based dry powder products have been around for a long time. It's a micronized crystalline drug that's attached to large lactose carriers. Okay. And that's the vehicle for delivering the drug into the lung. Now, some of the challenges with that are is a traditional lactose formulation is not very flow efficient, meaning you lose a lot of the drug being impacted on the back of the throat and then going into the GI tract. It also requires a significant amount of volume. You can't pack as much drug into the particles as you can in what we would call engineered particles, which is what Iceburst is. So there's limitations with lactose powders. You're limited in terms of how you formulate the drug for absorption into the lungs. It's not optimal. It's a bit of a blunt instrument. So if you fast forward, there have been different companies that have developed inhaled technologies. You mentioned uh, Nectar being one. You have Pulmosphere, which is a small porous particle technology, right? It looks kind of like a wiffle ball. You have Arcus, which is a large porous particle, looks like a crumpled up piece of paper, and you attach the drug to these particles, and same thing. They're better than a lactose formulation, but Iceburst really is unique. Iceburst, first of all, our particles are submicron in size, so they're very small. They have a very high tap density, so they're really dense, like a ball bearing, right? Really dense. And oddly enough, you would think they wouldn't be dispersible, meaning they have good flow efficiency, but they really have a great flow efficiency where it requires low inspiratory flow. So just like you and I are breathing right here, we call that tidal, regular tidal breathing, you can get a full dose of the drug just breathing like you're sitting here at your desk. You don't have to take a a real deep inhalation, just your regular breathing. So with our technology, we can have 80% of the particle itself, and the particles are made with different salt excipients, but we can have up to 80% of the particle itself be the drug. So you can pack a big dose and deliver tens of milligrams of drug into the lungs, which is really impossible with any of these other inhaled technologies, including some of the engineered technologies I mentioned. Again, low respiratory flow to get the drug into the lungs. Also, because you're packing a lot of drug into a small particle size, you don't have the volume issue. And we can use our dry powders in basically almost any device, whether it be a meter dose inhaler, reservoir-based inhaler. We use a simple single capsule-based inhaler. You have blister-based inhalers like Advair. So our technology can be used in any of those. So we're device agnostic, which really is helpful. And the obvious advantage, maybe obvious to us, not to everybody, but with any of these inhaled technologies, you're avoiding the first pass effect and systemic side effects that come from oral formulations or maybe even an IV delivery. So there's a lot of advantages to Iceburst, and we've looked at all types of molecules, whether they be small molecules to biologics, and the platform has the capability of engineering uh, small particles for inhalation in a broad range of drugs. Again, small. How about something like that's like really hydrophobic? Could you do that? Yeah, I don't want to get too technical, but 
And I also don't want to get too bullish. My team would say, we can do just about anything. And so again, it's we start getting into the details of how they actually formulate the products, whether they're amorphous blends or nanocrystalline blends. And those would Im- impact, again, the performance of the drug substantially. And you know, that varies by products. So Point, let, let me ask uh, just a bit of a marketing question. You mentioned, well, we can put this in all different kind of inhalers or, or devices. How is it? What does it look like on the shelf? I mean, are you going to have to package for each distribution type? Or no. So I'll give you an example. We use a device. It's a Plasti Ape RS01 device. It's a single capsule inhaler. It's an off-the-shelf device, right? So we don't have to invest in any kind of manufacturing. We basically license its use and purchase products off the shelf. It's very inexpensive. Other products are already on the market with that same device. So that helps from a regulatory perspective. So what it would look like is patients would get a prescription, they'd get a device, and they'd get a, just like if you were prescribed your oral hypertension medicine, you'd get either a blister pack or you'd get a jar of capsules that would be the capsules that you put in the device and inhale. We try to minimize the number of capsules. I think, for example, with the antifungal, we're targeting, can we get it down to a couple capsules for inhalation? And again, you can bring down the number of capsules by increasing the drug load, i.e. the percentage uh, of the particles that's drug itself, or increasing the powder load in the capsules. So we have a lot of different levers to pull to optimize delivery. But at the end of the day, they're going to have some capsules, and they're going to have the device, and they're going to have to put the capsule into the device close it, pierce the side, and just breathe regularly, and they'll get their drug. All right, so let's talk about those drugs. There are three. You've mentioned one of them. Pulmazole is one. This is an antifungal for asthma patients. A second one has a serial number, not yet a name. It's PUR3100. This is an inhalable dihydroergotamine, or DHE. This is a drug to treat acute migraine. And we have pur 1800. This is a drug. It's a narrow spectrum kinase inhibitor. This is for acute exacerbations of COPD. So let's start with the Pulmazole. First, why did you choose to work with this compound? So that decision was made before I came on board. But I can say that they evaluated a number of different antifungals, ranging from voriconazole to amphotericin to itraconazole, the common denominator being they're all generic. Okay. And they're all used in treating fungal infections in the lungs. One of the reasons we chose itraconazole is because it's currently the standard of care. Infectious Disease Society of American Guidelines have the use of oral steroids as the first line of defense. And then if you're not achieving results to use an oral antifungal and the recommended antifungal oral is itraconazole, though it's not approved for it, it's recommended in the treatment guidelines. So it made sense to target that product for that reason. But most importantly, it was a product that demonstrated characteristics that led the scientific team to believe that it would be easy to formulate and would demonstrate the characteristics that we want to see. So it was really a scientific decision first, a kind of market decision second in terms of what's currently used. And that's how we landed on itraconazole as the... So so the drug was out there. Is this did you buy it from somebody? You made a deal with somebody? It's generic. So we just buy uh, API and we formulate the API. Our dry powder. Yep. All right. 
there's some sort of partnership with CIPLA involved in this? There is. So when we had completed our phase one study, we're trying to move forward with a phase two study that was a safety biomarker study that was four weeks long. We looked at different avenues to finance that, and we thought it would be really advantageous to partner with CIPLA because of their global presence, knowing that this product has global potential, uh, as well as their experience in supply chain and manufacturing we thought would be advantageous, and their history in respiratory disease. In terms of the deal, what pushed it over the threshold for us and the positive side of things was we started our conversations with the traditional licensure, but we ended up with a 50-50 partnership. And that's really great because at that stage of development, you don't want to give away too much value. So instead, we've aligned as 50-50 partners. We share equally in the cost of development, which includes the CROs and all the external costs, but also includes a significant portion of our uh, personnel that are dedicated to the program. We're splitting the cost of them 50-50. And that's through the entire development of the product. We're responsible for the clinical development up to approval. And then once it's approved, SIPL will take over on the commercialization side and build the plans and strategies for commercialization, stand up a sales force in the U.S., that sort of thing. But all decisions regarding the product are joint. They're 50-50. It is a true equal partnership in every sense of the word, both financially and in terms of decision making. All right, cool. So right, give me just briefly the phase one data you mentioned. What was the most compelling thing about that data where you decided, okay, we can proceed? Well, the phase one study, it's your traditional SAD, MAD, you know, single sending dose, multiple sending dose. That's your phase one study. And we added a third part to that, which is actually what I consider the most exciting. The first two are just natural barriers to entry. You have to you know, get a sense of what you can dose, show it's safe and well tolerated. But the third part of that study, we did a single dose crossover comparison uh, in asthmatic patients of Pulmazol 20 milligrams, that's our drug inhaled, versus a single dose of Sporinox 200 milligrams orally taken. And the challenges with oral Sporinox, though it's the standard of treatment for ABPA or part of the standard of care, is has very poor oral bioavailability. You have to get a lot of drug in the system to just get a little bit into the lungs and get into that therapeutic window. So, and that causes side effects with the oral antifungal that are related to the high plasma concentrations. And though it's efficacious, our theory is if you can get more into the lungs, all the better. It might be even more efficacious. So what our study showed that was really exciting was it showed that in that single dose comparison, 20 milligrams inhaled delivered 50 times higher lung exposure than 200 milligrams oral. So that bodes well for efficacy. And then the side effects side, it showed 85-fold lower plasma concentration because, again, it's avoiding the whole GI tract and it's just going directly into the lungs. So that bodes well from a tolerability perspective. So that right there is exactly the proof of principle we wanted to see. And that's what we took out in terms of uh, moving forward to design our phase two study, which the original phase two study was a four-week safety biomarker study because that's the tox data we had. I might get into this later, but that study ultimately ended up having to be stopped because of COVID. But it gave us an opportunity because we had six and nine months. We had our chronic tox data package, which allowed us now to dose longer. So we're able to do a true phase two efficacy study that'll give us some proof of concept in terms of efficacy with the drug. So how large the trials are going to be? It's not a big study. There haven't been a lot of big studies in this disease state, though 
doesn't meet the classification of an orphan rare disease, you have to manage it as such, uh, probably mostly because there's a lot of underdiagnosis out there. So our study is a total of 30 patients, six placebo, 12 in each treatment arm. They'll be dosed for 16 weeks of pulmazole, 20 milligrams or 40 milligrams or placebo for 16 weeks. And then they'll be followed for eight weeks. And we're looking at primary endpoints of FEV1 and exacerbations, and then obviously looking at other qualitative measures and biomarkers like ACQ6, serum IgE, so on and so forth. But that study's planned to start in first quarter this year. Not this year, sorry, first quarter 2023. And it's a study that we couldn't originally do following the phase one because we just didn't have the tox data to support it. But now we do. Tox data was really clean. And we're really excited to move forward with the study because the other two placebo-controlled studies that have been done in this disease, again, it's uh, we're forging a path here, is the Dr. Stevens study, which was published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2000, that had 56 patients. The Wark study that was published in 2003 that had 29 patients. The, both those studies showed an improvement of FEV1 with a relatively small patient size. And again, this was with oral therapy on top of standard of care. We believe, again, that now that we're delivering so much more into the lungs via the Pulmazole product, that we should be able to meet or beat the type of results that they saw in these other small placebo-controlled studies. You mentioned earlier that you were looking at the marketing aspects before you wanted to jump into actually doing this. And this does fit rather nicely with your background in sales. You did some clinical intelligence work, if you will, talking to payers about this? We did. Payers and providers. So we did a full-blown uh, qualitative and quantitative market research that culminated with a peak revenue forecast that shared in our deck. But we did interview uh, 10 payers. And the main question that we had to ask to get comfortable was, first of all, how are you viewing this product relative to the other antifungals? Right? Is this a product that's going to be step edited? You know, it came back consistently from payers was that this is a product that they don't benchmark against the antifungals because there's no approved antifungal therapy. How can you step at it a product and have them step at it, step through even a product that's part of the treatment guidelines if there's not a, a robust body of evidence and that product's not itself approved for the treatment of ABPA? So being the first approved product for the treatment of ABPA will have its advantages there. And from a price perspective, they really looked at the appropriate analogs from a pricing view to be the asthma biologics that are on the market. Syncare, Nucala, Zolaire. They also lumped into there the Toby Podhaler, which for cystic fibrosis is an inhaled antibiotic. So all of those products are priced in the $30,000, $40,000 a year range. And the feedback from payers is that's where they would put it. So we knew at least from a price perspective, though it's a small market per se, the price was good. And then what was really encouraging was the feedback from physicians that they basically said they'll increase their use of an antifungal period from about 30% of the time first line to 65% of the time they're going to use it first line. And they also said they're going to convert almost all, I think it was 88% of their existing antifungal use to the inhaled antifungal. So it was such a robust response from physicians that it's clearly Based upon our target product profile, it's meeting an unmet need out there, which is really exciting. So, yep, 
Let's go on. The next one, PUR3100. This is the inhalable DHE formulation for acute migraine. There's any number of anti-migraine medications out there. What problem is it are you addressing with this? What's the unmet need here? So first of all, all the migraine products, different mechanisms of action. It's important to note that the most widely used migraine products are triptans. I mean, of course, there's all non-prescription drugs people take, NSAIDs and you know, a variety of things that they do before they end up on a prescription. But triptans by far uh, command most of the market and they're generic for the most part. So it's a very generic driven market, very triptan driven market. Payers, for example, mandate in general that for any of these new therapies that have come on the market, that patients have to go through at least two generic products before they end up on a new branded agent. So the reason that's important to answer your question is the unmet need here is that in our market research, it showed, and this is pretty well understood, that 40% of patients on triptans are experiencing a suboptimal response. Okay. Triptans also take up to a couple hours to really begin to work. That's the key. And even the new therapies like CGRPs, they have a relatively slow onset of action as well. And I would say that their efficacy is not necessarily that much more robust than what's already out there. The reason that they've done so well commercially is just because, again, there's such a large percentage of patients on triptans and other therapies that are getting a suboptimal response. You just become part of the rotation. So the CRGRPs and other agents have become part of the rotation and built quite a business. But I would say the real differentiation is going to come with an inhaled DHE that can be taken at any point in the migraine. Migraine upon uh, awakening is a challenge for triptans or CGRPs, any of these other ones that require a long onset of of efficacy because once the migraine sets in, it's hard to reverse. Uh, DHEs have demonstrated through other formulations to not have that issue. And I would also say that the onset through our delivery to the lungs is where the real advantage is going to be. The name of the game in terms of efficacy and migraine is the CMAX that you can achieve with the product and the TMAX, the time that you achieve that. So we believe that through inhalation, we will have a very clear and distinct advantage from a PK perspective compared to any of the triptans, obviously, on the market, and even compared to some of the other DHEs that are currently on the market and in development through a nasal administration. So our theory is DHE is a gold standard. It's just had a suboptimal delivery method. And we believe and that inhaled is the optimal route of delivery. And we think we'll be able to bear that out with our phase one study, which is commencing uh, any week now. Could you just briefly describe the phase one? We're comparing three doses with intravenous DHE. So IV DHE, again, is available and it's understood to be very effective. The problem is it has to be administered via IV, number one. And number two, it has such a high CMAX that you get to the level where 50% of patients are experiencing emesis, which is vomiting. So we, what we're going to compare to IV DHE so we can compare our PK profile to the IV, which is how things are done in this space. It's how all the other products in development, at least the DHEs, have done their early stage studies to compare via the IV. So we're going to compare all three doses to the IV uh, PK. And the advantages of these three doses is 
all three of them are in what we consider to be the therapeutic window of a thousand picograms per mil to 10,000 picograms per mil. And all three of them are at a CMAX, which again is the name of the game here in terms of efficacy, at a CMAX that is higher than the nasal DHEs that are under development, at least this is what our modeling data shows, and at a CMAX that we think will be delivered from a PK perspective in a way that's very similar to MAP Pharmaceuticals, which is a product that we've modeled our program that we modeled our development program after. It was the first and only pulmonary inhaled DHE that was being developed for migraine. And they had some key successes and we've learned from those. So we think we're going to be able to, from a PK perspective, show a more advantageous PK profile compared to the nasals, compared to the IV, and maybe even compared to the MAP Pharmaceuticals DHE that was once in development. All right. So we have one more drug to talk about. This is PUR1800. This is the inhaled narrow spectrum kinase inhibitor for exacerbations of COPD. This was licensed from Janssen, as I understand. What's the deal with Janssen? So we licensed it from Janssen. It was actually one of the first deals that I was a part of when I came on board. They had at the time, they had a company called Respivert. Respivert had developed this P38-6 kinase inhibitor. At that time when we licensed it, J&J had decided to exit respiratory as a therapeutic area of focus. And we had done some early modeling with their product to determine A, if we could formulate it, and B, if it could help overcome some challenges they were having with the traditional lactose blend formulation that they were using. So when J&J exited respiratory, they knew we could formulate it. They believed we had the best potential to advance it clinically. So we did a licensing deal, a worldwide licensing deal, and brought the product in. All right. And we have some phase one data. Could you top line that? So we have phase one data, and the phase one data really is what we can share now is that all objectives of safety and pharmacokinetics were completed. We're working on a publication later this year. So we've withheld further details, but we can say that it was safe and tolerable and there were no related serious adverse events. We can also say that, you know, we're very encouraged by the PK profile of the drug. And we said this before, there were challenges that J&J or Respervert had with the original lactose formulation, which was called RV1162. They had drug accumulation issues in the lungs that were not going to allow it to be dosed chronically. They had some physical and chemical stability issues with the formulation. And I can proudly say that Iceburse and the team that designed the particles has been able to remedy all of those to the point where we saw some very encouraging PK information in the phase one study, as well as we delivered six and nine month tox results for 1800, which appears to have resolved the drug accumulation issues that the original RV1162 had which now opens the door for a chronic dosing paradigm, which was something that could not have been done with prior formulations. So we're excited about the data package we have. This year really is all about understanding the phase one data, packaging it, building a plan for what a phase two might be, exploring other options that have opened up for us with this tox data for chronic dosing, and then having this packaged in a way that we can engage investors or potential partners in first quarter of next year. All right. So that is the presence of Iceburst. I want to ask about the future of Iceburst. You indicated that your team is pretty bullish on the platform and they say, oh yeah, we can totally do that. Have they said, oh, Ted, let's do this one next? 
Well, what I can tell you is I'll focus rather on a specific product and just more on areas of therapeutic interest. So number one, CNS remains a keen interest for us. CNS, often you want to have products where you can have an early onset of action. You can achieve systemic blood levels very quickly. We believe we can do that with our migraine program. We could do that with other medications where that might be advantageous, whether it be, uh, think of other medications that maybe you're injected, like antipsychotic medication or a medication. So there's a whole menu of options that we can look at in the neurology space. I would say respiratory disease is another one ranging from lung cancer to uh, anti-infected disease to your traditional respiratory diseases that I think of like COPD, asthma, IPF, cystic fibrosis. And then the third area is where we have products that we know the existing formulation is suboptimal. Maybe it's an oral therapeutic that just has poor bioavailability. That's an easy recipe for success. That's what we solve for with Pulmazole. Or it's a product that doesn't perform optimally in its existing formulation. Even if it's inhaled, that's kind of what 1800 did. We optimized that formulation with Iceburst. So those are the types of therapeutic areas we're looking at. Poorly bioavailable products being one. Second, respiratory disease therapies and CNS. Those are our keen areas of focus. And we have different candidates underneath each of those buckets, but I think I can't really go into that detail now. All right. Well, I think listeners and I have grasped by now, I think you have the wherewithal to do this. You have the will to do this. Now you need to tell me if you have the money to do this. So what is your current runway and what sort of conversations are you looking to have in the remainder of this year with investors? So I'm not sure if this year is the time to have conversations. (laughs) Just buy them a drink and just say, I'm sorry. Yeah. Maybe we can. Yeah, exactly. Commiserate have a shoulder to cry on, but it's not a great market right now. I think there's a lot of consolidation happening in the biotech space, companies looking to build scale, critical mass. So I'll answer the question this way. I've always approached our business in terms of the primary objective and my role as a CEO is being creating optionality for investors and for our board to decide upon. So that means that on an ongoing basis, I'm exploring strategic partnerships, whether they be in licensing or new products or out licensing our existing ones. I'm exploring strategic M&A on an ongoing basis to see if there's anything out there that makes sense. And I'm trying to position our products through execution and delivery of milestones to the best of my ability to be able to go to the investor community and say, you should invest in this. So parallel pathing all three of those is, in my view, the job description. And I think in the last couple of years, We've shown that. We've done a number of deals. I think last year we raised $46 million. I think the year before that we raised, gosh, I think it was, I don't know, close to $30 million. I've brought in $27 million of non-dilutive capital between the Palmate, between the CIPLA deal and the J&J deal, which ended up not panning out. But nonetheless, all of these have allowed us to keep moving the ball forward, right? Partnerships, delivering on your data milestones, And I plan to continue exploring any and all of those to make sure that we have as many options as possible to choose from. Now, with that being said, I think as a company, what's right in front of us is we have to deliver our phase one data for the migraine program at the end of this year. Okay, that's number one. Number two, 
I want us to have worked through the 1800 data, know exactly what that phase two would look like, have that study designed, budgeted. My goal for both those assets of 3100 and pure 1800 is that by early next year, end of first quarter next year, I want to have two phase two ready assets, that they're ready to go into the clinic if we have the right partner or funding to do so, period. And at the same time, by end of first quarter next year, I want to be in the position where we're well along the way with our Pomazol study, phase 2B study. We started dosing in first quarter, and the study's on way and on track for delivering data in second quarter of 2024. So that's where we want to be in terms of the cash runway. We have the cash to get there. Okay, So we have the cash, thanks to some really great financing last year, to get us into second quarter of 2024, which is the same time frame that we're expecting data on our phase 2B study from the Pulmazol program. So I think we're well positioned. We have the capital to do the work. We have a couple important milestones in front of us with 3,100 phase one data, further down the line, the Pulmazol phase two data. And we have a couple products that have really interesting data packages, both with migraine. We'll get that phase one data at the end of this year. And then with uh, AECOPD, we'll have a really solid story for 1800 again going into next year. So we have assets with options. We have other assets that are delivering data. And we have cash to, I think, both allow us to hit those milestones. And I think also weather a bit of the storm that's happening out there in the capital markets a bit. Yeah. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Ladies and gentlemen, today I have been speaking with Ted Rad. He is the CEO and director of Polmatrix. Ted, thank you for spending the time with me today. Thank you, Neil. Very much appreciate it. Have a great day and thanks a lot. It's nice to meet you. Thank you for listening to this week's Benchtop Bios. I hope that this episode will serve as yet another data point to guide you in your investment strategies. If you wish to hear more of Lifesize Benchtop Bios, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google. Also, if there's a company or a particular executive you'd like to get to know, I do take requests. Please send those to and Canada at lifesciadvisors.com. Until next week then, goodbye, or for that matter, good sell, whatever boosts your portfolio.